Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Kish Perella, professor of ethics and law at Washington Lee University. We'll be discussing her new article, Corporate Foreign Policy and War, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Kish, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for having me back. At the time that we are recording this episode, we're quickly approaching the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which began in February 2022. This is a war that's being fought on many fronts, both literal fronts and figurative fronts. And I wondered if we could talk about one front, and that's the reaction of the international business community to this invasion. I'd like to get to maybe some of the causes and motivations for these reactions in just a moment, but could you lay out how American and other multinational businesses have reacted or they are reacting to this Russian invasion of Ukraine? Sure. I think we can categorize these reactions into two sets. The first one sort of their responses towards Ukraine and this Ukrainian population. So here we saw fairly early on public statements from high-ranking corporate leaders condemning the Russian attack on Ukraine, as well as commitments of humanitarian assistance. Whether those commitments involve monetary donations to an international aid organization or donations of the goods and services that company provides, or donations of time by employees, or some other kind of humanitarian assistance that's directed towards those harmed by the war. On the other hand, we also saw companies responding to the Russian government. And here, companies were faced with basically stay-or-leave decisions, or some kind of choice between outright exit and continuing business as normal. So we see these two kinds of types of responses directed at Ukraine and the Ukrainian population on one hand, and Russia and the Russian population. There are two acronyms that we think about a lot these days in the corporate context. One is corporate social responsibility, CSR, and then the other is environmental social governance, ESG. Are these reactions of multinational firms to the war in Ukraine, are these reactions something that we might categorize as being CSR or ESG, or are they something else? How should we think about these types of responses? So I think that's a great question. I do think there's a strong temptation to view these responses through either the lens of CSR or ESG. And while these frameworks can be helpful to address some of the decisions that companies are facing following the invasion of Ukraine, I do think what we're seeing is something a little different. And it's something that's been going on for decades, frankly, but is something that deserves its own sort of analysis. And I think that is corporate foreign policy. And at least in my opinion, it differentiates itself from corporate social responsibility in three primary ways, objectives, targets, and mechanisms. So the objectives of corporate foreign policy are different than corporate social responsibility. 
Specifically, corporate foreign policy, as we see demonstrated in the Russian war, is really company action that's directed towards influencing the behavior of one government in that government's relationship to yet another government or an international organization. So here it could be primarily in terms of Russia's war on Ukraine. A second thing that distinguishes corporate foreign policy from corporate social responsibility is the target. So while corporate social responsibility has multiple audiences, including government leaders, corporate foreign policy is primarily targeted towards a government audience. And specifically, the government audience that is integral for making the decisions that the company is focused on. Certainly, investors, consumers, and the media and various other actors may be secondary audiences for corporate foreign policy, but not the primary one. And third, the mechanisms of corporate foreign policy are unique. Specifically, as we see demonstrated in the past so many months, we see that companies are really employing the familiar tools of state-based foreign policy. In the Ukrainian context, companies are coming up with humanitarian aid packages, including partnering with international aid organizations. And this is important because at the same time that companies are providing humanitarian aid, we see significant humanitarian aid packages offered by the U.S. and other governments absolutely to alleviate the suffering in Ukraine, but it's also in pursuing their own strategic objectives as part of their own foreign policy. Humanitarian assistance is one pillar of foreign policy that we see companies deploying here. And the other one is sanctions. So economic sanctions have also been deployed significantly by a number of governments following the invasion of Ukraine. And we see companies making the decisions to stay or leave even when not required to do. And absolutely, those decisions are going to have an impact on the Russian economy. I think that collectively, through its objectives, targets, and mechanisms, we're seeing a type of corporate behavior that is distinguishable from both ESG and CSO. I'm a CEO, or if I'm a member of a board of directors, trying to make this stay or leave decision with respect to Russia and Ukraine. And if I'm thinking about what my corporate foreign policy is, what are some of the motivations I'm thinking about or what are some of the motivations that are leading me to make one decision or the other? So certainly there are legal considerations when we're talking about a sanctions regime. But I think what has been particularly demonstrated over the past few months is the power of reputational risk. And what's interesting about the corporate responses is that we saw a number of organizations and media outlets aggregating company responses. And so what I mean by that is a number of media outlets would collect the responses of companies, both in terms of humanitarian assistance to Ukraine or stay or leave decisions in Russia. And one of the biggest catalysts for this is the database maintained by the Yale School of Management which as of now, I believe has over a thousand companies categorized into five types, ranging from exit to quote unquote doing business as usual. And so they've really gone and identified the business decisions of hundreds and hundreds of companies from around the world and have listed all of them and have identified what these companies are now doing. And it's dynamic. So it changes over time. And I think this 
sort of third party intermediary is really important in terms of sharpening reputational sanctions because they performed a lot of the functions that are really important for reputational sanctions to have, which is they first went and they aggregated all this information. So they went and collected this information for over a thousand firms so that you and I don't have to go and search this out ourselves. So they improved transparency, first of all. And second, they offered comparability. They gave one handy location for the public to basically compare the responses of one company against another. And then the other thing that they did is that they gave normative value to these decisions. So this database just didn't identify what companies did. It graded companies on these responses from an A to exit to an F to staying business as usual. And through transparency, aggregation, comparability, and normative designation, the database really made it far more easy, frankly, for consumers of this information to make judgments of their own as to what companies are doing. And I think that is what sort of made companies particularly sensitive to public reactions, public outrage over these stay or leave decisions. One of the key contributions of your article is to think about the mechanisms that drive the decisions that companies are making with this corporate foreign policy, uh, this sort of self-sanctioning effect. And I'd like to maybe take two possibilities that you raise one by one. The first is that companies have reacted the ways that they've reacted due to what you call demand side factors. I wonder if you could talk about what those demand side factors are and perhaps explain the mechanism that they work through. And do these demand side factors offer us a complete or satisfactory explanation for the decisions that we see companies making in the context of Russia and Ukraine? Demand side factors are the different kinds of preferences held by a company's stakeholders for a particular course of action. And the demand side factor analysis looks very similar to both CSR analysis and ESG analysis. So we map the stakeholders for a particular group. It's asking, do these different groups who possess resources that a company needs to thrive, do they have strong preferences for a particular type of corporate foreign policy or not? But you're absolutely right. It's not sufficient for analysis of company responses because we see companies who probably have very similar stakeholder profiles, making very different decisions. So something more has to be going on than the fact that consumers are outraged and are threatening boycotts if a company doesn't exit. It sounds like demand side factors aren't giving us a full explanation. You also consider the possibility that supply side factors might be driving some of these reactions. I might pose the same question regarding those. What are the supply side factors? What's the mechanism of how they work? And how useful are they for explaining some of the decisions that we've seen companies take? I think some of the critical supply side factors include business model chosen, contract design, board governance, loss absorption, and organizational capacity for crisis response. And let me just give you an example as to why these factors matter. The media definitely covered the stay or leave decisions of three companies, McDonald's, Starbucks, and Papa John's. And McDonald's suspended operations 
far earlier than Papa John's. And one of the reasons it could do that is because it owned 850 of its own stores. And so it was able to make that decision quite effectively, whereas Starbucks and Papa John's work through a licensed partner. A Starbucks licensed partner did agree to suspend operations, but Papa John's partner didn't which meant that a number of his stores continued to be open with the end result that Papa John's was then exposed to significant public criticism for that decision. All this to demonstrate that the business model chosen by these companies really matters for stay or leave decisions. And one thing that has really become clear following the invasion of Ukraine is why business model matters for these exit decisions that are in conflict situations. For example, A number of companies operated in Russia through master franchise agreements and master franchise agreements can be attractive because it allows for a franchiser to expand fairly rapidly in a foreign market at low cost. And because the franchiser is not in a direct contractual relationship with the sub franchisees, he can offer some level of protection against liability. But that same model was a problem for a number of companies when it came to exit decisions because the franchisor was not in a direct relationship with the sub-franchisees, so could not exert the type of control that might be needed in order to make what we could think of centralized policymaking. Another issue is contractual design. So even if a company decides to choose a particular business model, the question is, how does the contract provide flexibility for situations like this? And we might immediately think about control provisions, which party gets to exercise control in situations like this. And the question is, what kind of situation is this? What rights are given to the franchisor in this situation? We could think about termination clauses, definition of material breach, what is it that would allow a franchise or otherwise another company broadly to basically either exercise control over decision making or to terminate the contract and still minimize its legal liability. And finally, one thing that I've talked about in the paper is when companies were threatening to exit, Russia threatened back. And there were laws that were implemented that would have been highly punitive for exiting firms. And so the question is, what types of options do they have to basically absorb those losses? And you could look at international investment law as one potential. What about political risk insurance? Are they adapted to give some protection for these decisions that companies might make? So those are three examples of business model contract design and options for loss absorption that would be critical for a company to consider. My next question, I know, is something that you're still thinking through, and I might just ask you for some of your tentative thoughts. But I wondered in reading this, to what extent this article, which is focused on the war in Ukraine, to what extent it can be externalized to other contexts in which firms might be called upon to either take a stand or not take a stand in the international foreign policy context. Is this a unique situation or is this essay something that can be externalized to other scenarios that have happened in the past or that might happen in the future? Thanks, Andrew. I do think it's something that can be externalized to other situations. This is a situation of interstate conflict, but there are a number of what's happening around the world. And, and I think companies are confronted with similar situations of what kind of humanitarian aid are they going to offer and are they going to stay or leave? We want to think about, on the one hand, how are they prepared to make these decisions? I think it's critical that companies think about choices such as business model, other strategic choices regarding how they can adapt 
to these situations. I've often heard this discussed in terms of companies in conflict-affected areas, and these issues are certainly paramount for them. But I do think that companies that may not operate in what they consider a conflict-affected area may also want to be prepared for these kinds of decisions. And here, I really want to highlight the importance of the first prong, the humanitarian assistance approach, because I don't know that companies are adopting a really strategic approach to this. And that's unfortunate because I do think that this is something that requires planning. It requires really thoughtful investments. And the reason it's important is because following the invasion, there was aggregation of company responses in terms of humanitarian assistance but not to the same level as the stay or leave decisions in Russia. However, I don't know that it would be that difficult to design a database that would focus on something like humanitarian assistance in a crisis, whether that crisis is arising from an armed conflict or from a natural disaster or another origin. I can imagine that companies' responses would be aggregated and compared and assigned some kind of normative value. And so just stay or leave decisions, these types of decisions also require investment and strategic planning. And I think this type of action is important not only for companies that operate in conflict-affected areas, but also high-profile companies that trade in life-sustaining goods and services because their profile will immediately attract attention and the types of goods or services will implicate them in a crisis response. The open question will be, what is this company doing? And so I think that it makes sense for companies to think hard about how they're preparing themselves to answer that question. I'd like to talk a little bit about how that preparation might work. If you were sitting down with a CEO or board that might have some exposure, international exposure to a future crisis, what advice would you be giving them for how to prepare their reactions to perhaps future crises? Or if a crisis does arrive and you were to sit down with a board or a CEO to talk about the firm's reaction, what should they do after the crisis arrives? The first part's a little easier. I think It's important to identify this as an area for strategic planning. And that means that there should be some level of oversight. And it probably should not be absorbed into general CSR committees or categories because that's a lot of different factors. Strategic planning would also require not just allocation of funds, but I think identifying critical strategic partnerships with civil society organizations or otherwise who have the necessary expertise. So one thing that we saw is that a number of companies donated their goods or services via some sort of civil society organization partner for a number of reasons. It would be interesting to see if a company has those partnerships in place. Those partnerships can compensate for a number of shortcomings of a company including expertise. Another thing that's interesting is that a company really reevaluates its organizational compatibility with its ability to offer humanitarian assistance in a crisis. This could require that a company actually adopt changes to the way it does one or two things or more in order to do. And this all highlights why it's very important that this is part of long-term planning and not something that is a last-minute response when the need arises. What key takeaways would you like listeners of this interview to have or readers of the article to have from your paper? 
I think the first one is that aside from ESG and CSR debates, there is something distinguishable about corporate foreign policy that is definitely prominent in situations of conflict, but is also present otherwise and might require certain types of strategic responses that may not be on the horizon with, say, CSR. The other thing that I'm unpacking in the paper now is how corporate foreign policy intersects with state-based foreign policy. One thing that's interesting is really thinking about the intersection between economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and other their governments and the self-sanctioning behavior of companies and what that means for the decision of either group. And the third takeaway is to really highlight the importance of supply-side factors. This lesson is important for two distinct groups. The first one are executives who are thinking about how to prepare themselves for these kinds of decisions in the future and all the different types of units that need to be in coordination in order to be in a fairly strong position to respond. But the other audience for this analysis are those groups who seek to pressure corporate actors to do better on a variety of sort of ESG issues, that it's not just about shaming corporate actors for the decisions they take, but also the earlier in time decisions that led to organizational constraints that made it difficult for them to take a decision that was desired at the moment. And so basically expanding the toolkit of the types of organizational features the civil society organization and others may scrutinize when they're evaluating a company's commitment to the ESG values. Our guest today has been Kish Perella, professor of ethics and law at Washington Lee University. We discussed her new article, Corporate Foreign Policy and War, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Kish, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew, and I really appreciate the chance to share my recent research. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.